Hi, welcome to Risk Engineers Talk Governance. My name's Megan and I work behind the scenes on the podcast, but also with hosts Richard Robinson and Gay Francis on their businesses, R2A, Due Diligence Engineers, and also Apto PPE, Women's and Maternity Hivis Workwear. Please enjoy this first episode of season one of the podcast. Richard and Gay talk about SFARP and the difference between it and LARP. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Also help us out and give us a rating if you do enjoy it so we can help other people find the podcast on this topic. The podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Please enjoy this episode. And if you have any questions or any ideas or feedback, please let us know. Enjoy. So again, I'm Gay Francis and with me today is Richard Robinson. We're both directors at R2A. And today's topic is ALARP versus SOFARP. I feel like we've talked about this a number of times, Richard, but welcome. We've talked about it forever, Gay, and welcome. And welcome, <laughs> Megan, who's our producer sitting in the sun over there and a, quite enjoying herself. On a beautiful Melbourne autumn day. Correct. So I guess where do we start for ALARP versus SOFARP? There's so many conversations and people that say that there's no difference between the two. Well, interesting enough, and probably this might be the way to introduce it, um, I was giving a briefing on behalf of Rio Tinta for that national um, tailings dam and they had a basically, he'd have to have been a criminal lawyer giving advice. And one of the things he pointed out, because all the engineers were carefully saying, well, look, we're not lawyers, we don't interpret the legislation. But one of the things this lawyer pointed out was that SOFARP isn't defined, that so far as reasonably practicable, isn't defined in the WHS legislation. But reasonably practicable is. And we've been thinking about this for some time, because obviously the legislation says you should eliminate hazards so far as reasonably practicable. And if you can't eliminate them, you should reduce them so far as reasonably practical, which is the SOFARP part. But if the legislation doesn't define SOFARP, can you actually use the term? Now, what we sort of realised was there's, a, there's another aspect to the Act, and the Act actually goes to some trouble, and the precursor to all this, the Victorian OHS Act 2004, has it in there, even though we haven't adopted WHS legislation in Victoria. But, but this element is a, is a particular cause or, or, or section that says you must achieve the highest level of precaution as is reasonably practicable. So whilst it doesn't define so far, it does define reasonably practicable. And then another portion of the act says you've got to achieve the highest level that you can. And that's what the so far principle is all about. So as so far as we can tell, the act actually does. And I'd be particularly interested to see if there's any lawyers out there who could actually have an opinion about this because uh, I think this is actually really quite important. So but it really sets out what the intent of the legislation is and what the principle of so far is rather than putting in the black letter of the law sort of yes. stuff. That's correct. And, and, and the way legislation works, if you do get a case, the first thing the lawyers do is say, go through the legislation and say, what did the legislators intend? What did the parliaments intend when they put that clause in? And you're not always, it's not altogether clear. And when you listen to the lawyers and the judgments and so forth, they're basically interpreting the words from parliament. Now, again, it's a bit hard to know what parliament actually intended, but we've always assumed that it came from the common law. That's what Michael Toomer says in his books, which we're willing to go with, and he's a, something of a guru in, in WHS legislation. Um, and if it's coming from the common law, then it's coming from Lord Atkin, 
the Brisbane Broad English Law Lord from 1932 and Donahue versus Stevenson. Which is all about due diligence. It's all about due diligence and it was all about the principle of reciprocity. Um, I think I mentioned to you, I just found fairly recently a, a, an article by a Canadian law professor, which was a bit of a surprise to me because I was, forget why I was tracking through looking for something, um, because I'd come to the view that he was, Atkin was actually talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan when he asked the question, and, and who in law is, a, uh, what's a lawyer? Um, and uh, I didn't realise this, but the, well, the, certainly the um, High Court judges or the House of Lords in the UK, when they're doing a judgment, they actually write notes out. Um, in case, I guess, that one of them gets sick and then another judge has to take over for some reason. They've got this case study of what they've done and how they've done it and what they've discovered and all these sorts of things. And this Canadian law professor is going through um, Atkins' notes uh, about this particular case. And he's absolutely crystal clear. He was given the reading on the parable of the Good Samaritan and quite literally that was why he included in the formulation of his neighbour principle. Um, so the intent was clear. It, the intent was clear and the way he said it was clear. How did he put it? The rule that you ought to love your neighbour becomes in law you must not injure your neighbour. And the lawyer's question, who is my neighbour, that's the lawyer's question that's asked in the 2,000-year-old question. These lawyers have always been with us. You know, we're not going to escape them in our lifetime. The lawyer's question, who's my neighbour, receives a restricted reply. And, and the restricted reply is along the lines that you must take reasonable care to, to, to affect anybody you know, knowing or unknowingly that you should have thought about. Um, and that's what the parable of Good Samaritan is actually about. So it's just a principle that shows up everywhere. So we've gone sort of a little bit off tangent, just a little bit, but that's not <laughs> unlike us, Richard. Um, so if we go back to Sofart versus Ayla, there, there is clearly a difference. And they have been, they're, they're defined by different people. ALAP is, is well, defined. Well, that, that Andrew Hopkins fellow from uh, ANU, he basically goes on about it at some length too. Uh, I didn't realise he's now an emeritus professor and according to Ravi Nidja, he's actually um, uh, in high demand overseas. Um, okay. The speaking engagement's making the same point, that, that there's no, nothing in law, it's, uh, the ALAP principle just doesn't exist mm. um, and your, your duty is to achieve the highest level you reasonably can. So, I mean, I guess ALAR's been used in the risk business for a long time now, 30 years plus. Um, and it, it really just talks about the hazard, doesn't it? The level of, of, of hazard, the level of risk, the level of hazard. And is it... Is it, and, uh, is it acceptable or tolerable or... or that's right. It's, it's measurable in some way. And, and as we've said and, many, many times, it's, it, it's a human construct of what people think the likelihood of those things are. Well, I think it goes a bit further. I think what they were trying to do, and, and, I, and I've got to say in history, I was probably guilty of this too, but what they were trying to do was make it a scientific concept, you know, the laws of nature, so that, that there was something you could physically measure. Um, but as has been pointed out by lots of people, and one of my former partners, Derek Viner, pointed it out too, you know, you send two risk experts out there to go and assess the risk associated with a circumstance or situation. Uh, if it was truly a scientific concept, they'd all come up with the same answer. They do not. They never do. No. Um, unless you use an identical process, in which case you've just done the same thing twice. And everybody would know that because when you're sitting around a risk workshop doing risk assessments, nobody agrees. No, it's very, very hard to get consensus from the group. Everyone has a different perspective on what that is, especially when you're talking about what the likelihood is. So, I mean, for us, the SOFAR principle is all about the precaution, the level of controls, the level of precautions and, and mitigations that are in place. So it's all about what needs to be done to manage the particular hazard rather than the level of risk. Correct. And the legislation is quite clear. You've got to achieve the highest level of control you can. 
Um, so for us, there, there is a clear difference. And I think some of the confusion comes out in that people are trying to redefine ALARP, redefine SOFARP in, in a way that sort of matches their processes. Well, I, what a, I mean, the, the frustration in all this, I mean, this all came around because of the, um, the Tolerable Risk Study by, um, was it to Frank Layfield, I think it was, um, in the UK? And he tried to make risk into a scientific concept, and that was because he was listening to scientists um, rather than talking to engineers, I think. Right. Because um, the engineers are always trying to meld the two. Um, the scientists look at the laws of nature, the, the lawyers look at the laws of man, but the people who live in the sandwich in the middle are always the engineers. Um, and I, for some reason, I haven't quite understood. The engineers don't quite understand that they're the meat in the sandwich. Um, they've got to make it all work. They've got to make it all work. And the problem with being an engineer is you, you, you're attached to the laws of nature. I mean, if you just talk about a financial problem, you can always argue about it in court after the event whether you're reasonable or not. Um, because you haven't got, you know, even killed or maimed anybody. You might have damaged them commercially, but it wasn't a death matter. Whereas when you're dealing with a structure or a fire that failed to be controlled or something like that, people die. So you've got to manage the laws of nature and get it right. Nobody's going to forgive you for it if you get it wrong. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of the things that really put me off, and I think I just mentioned to you, I was, for some reason I was looking up the registration of engineers in Victoria. And I was looking up the, um, the person who signs off on the Code of Ethics and the interpretation of the Code of Ethics that they were posing on registered engineers in Victoria. The first point it says is, no, the law. And then it goes on to speak about the, the, the Wrongs Act. Now, I learned about the Wrongs Act... 30 years ago when I was doing some expert witness thing and a, and a lawyer mentioned it to me, I didn't know anything about it. It contains a thing called the Occupiers Liability Act which shows the duty of care you have towards somebody who comes into your premises like a shopping centre or something like that. And it's the common law duty of care and it actually lists the principles that define in pretty much the WHS legislation of what constitutes reasonable practicability, less consequence, likelihood and all these other factors. You know, it's a degree which you've got control and so forth. Um, now, I've always quoted... The Occupiers Liability Act is in the consolidated version of the Wrongs Act and all the cases then you would recall that I've done this and I you do, used to Richard. look at me and say, why is Richard including that? And the answer <laughs> was because the lawyers told me to. Um, and yet this lawyer is saying the first principle in the Code of Ethics is know the law. Now, you can already see that with somebody who spent a, a fair bit of time fiddling around with getting advice from lawyers, the legal opinion you're getting varies quite substantially. How on earth are the engineers meant to know about all this legal stuff? And yet that's the first duty as a registered engineer in Victoria. That is a stupendous, let alone all the technical standards and things like that that you have to consider. I think they're trying to make it so complicated with that sort of stuff. I mean, for us, SOFARP is a governance um, principle in that it wants everybody that has the ability to control the hazard to work together to get the highest level of protection. I, for me, it's just some of the legislation and the standards and all of that stuff around it, which we will cover in another um, podcast, I'm the sure. The with standards. Um, they're trying to make it so com complex. But if you look at it from a top-down governance viewpoint, it's about getting all of the parties in the room, all of the key stakeholders in the room that has the ability to control this hazard to agree on what the highest level of precaution is. It's not um, allocating blame somewhere that it's a single person's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. Well, it actually knocks the issue of a competent person around a bit, which is but a particular popular thing to put in legislation because if you, if you need the collective wisdom rather than just one person signing off it, how do you do it? And as that Professor Sidney Decker points out from Brisbane University, who's an airline pilot turned psychologist, um, 
There are so many rules out there now, and that's one of the problems of standards. I mean, there's so many, so much stuff out there. It is not possible for one person to know it all anymore. It just isn't possible. And the problem with that is, if you're coming bottom-up and you're expected to know it all, well, you can't. And that's the same thing with that first question, the, the regulator uh, on the Code of Ethics in Victoria, or Code of Practice for Registration of Engineers. It is not possible for an engineer to know all the law that this, obviously, lawyer was speaking to. Mm. So, I mean, from our viewpoint, there is a difference between ALARP and SOFAR. ALARP is hazard focus, and if you've seen any of our presentations before, um, we go through that in, in quite a bit of detail of why that's the case. And the SOFAR principle is really about looking at the controls that can be put in place to make sure that the hazard's managed appropriately. It's all about the controls. And that was the other point I just made. Remember how we sort of demonstrated that we like the single line, line threat barrier diagrams as a way to construct an argument that'll go from the workers and the people actually doing things mm. to the board and all the lawyers and everybody else in between that gets hold of things. But one of the things we do with our threat barrier diagrams now is we put in precautions that are the responsibility of others in a different colour so that you can see that the sequence of controls going through the hierarchy and the hierarchy in the legislation is eliminate and then reduce. The hierarchy in the common law is eliminate, prevent and then mitigate and most of the regulators are completely confused because they've got four or more, generally up to six, which just mm. leaves everybody in a state of confusion. It does. Anyway. So we've got... Um, that, that sort of brings us to the end of, of our podcast for today. Um, if you'd like to have any more information about ALARP versus SOFAR, we do um, cover it in our um, criminal manslaughter booklet, which is available on our website. And um, thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us next time. Thanks, Kay. Thanks, Megan. <laughs>